Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, July 13th. We begin with a look at how both the pandemic and record high inflation rates are impacting the retirement plans of Canadians. We get some insight from David Gunn, president of Edward Jones Canada. Next, it's been a tough couple of years for all of us and has certainly been hard on post-secondary students, many of which have been forced to pause their schooling or push back their graduation. We hear details on a new study from the C.D. Howe Institute focusing on that topic and how it could ultimately affect Canada's labour market. Then we head south of the border to speak with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie brings us the latest on the continuing hearings into the January 6th insurrection and former President Donald Trump's involvement on that historic day. And finally, it's our monthly conversation with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager shares the story of the global effort to reintroduce a very unique species of tree to Easter Island. With inflation at a 40-year high, many Canadians are re-evaluating their retirement plans. Joining us with insight to get your retirement plans back on course is David Gunn, president of Edward Jones Canada. Good morning to you, David. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's great to be with you during Stampede Week. Yes, absolutely. Picture you in your cowboy hat as you talk to us (laughs) this morning. Uh, Kind of a double whammy. We had the pandemic and now inflation, which is sky high. What are you hearing from, from your clients? Has it changed your clients and, and Canadians' retirement plans on, on the whole? I would say it has. Um, you know, the pandemic uh, disrupted a lot of lives for Canadians, but maybe one silver lining of the pandemic is that many are rethinking what really matters and what they want to spend uh, doing in their retirement. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, prior generations looked at a target date of age 65 to retire, but what we're, we're seeing uh, currently is that Canadians want to spend 27 years in retirement. They have no defined age or date that they want to retire. Um, And 60% of Canadians plan to work um, some form in retirement. So this is a long period of time in retirement, 27 years, and planning to work. So it's really, really different. And we we call it a new journey of, of retirement for Canadians. David, is it ever too late to start saving or planning for retirement? It it really isn't. I I think that's a great question. It's never too early to start saving for retirement. It's never too late to recalibrate your retirement plan to to, make sure you're on track. And not just now, but through each stage of life. Couldn't be a more important time. Rising inflation, rising interest rates. You hear the potential of a recession. Um, Very, very important time to look at your complete financial picture holistically. Not just your mortgage, not just, say, credit cards, but your retirement savings all together to see how things are balancing out. And if you're on, if you're on track for what you want to do in your unique journey um, to retirement. Your view though, David, that's, you know, your view is the broad view, the view from above looking at the future for these clients. However, with things so tight, is there that trepidation that, you know, I'm having a hard time making ends meet. I certainly don't have 20, 50, 100, or a few hundred dollars to put aside for something like this. Is that the challenge? Is underscoring to to people that retirement will be coming, whether you like it or not? It certainly could be. Again, I would say that every individual situation is different. There's a number of things that can be done, though, with, let's say, potentially uh, losing a job Um, and, you know, things to plan for, having an emergency fund um, so you don't have to stop saving for, you know, longer-term goals. 
but it's possible. Um, you know, we always would recommend meeting with a professional because during uncertainty and during, you know, at times like these, potentially it may make sense to redirect savings into other areas um, to make sure that you're safe and will be protected. Um, and I, I would also, you know, mention that recessions, because you hear a lot of talk, are we in a recession? Are we going into recession? These are defined as short term, usually two quarters of economic decline. And if an individual has uh, is saving for retirement that's 10 years away, two, qu- two quarters uh, really likely isn't large enough to impact what to, com- you know, to completely adjust your financial strategy. David, something I just kind of learned recently, I, um, maybe it was something I should have known, but you know, I, I've always been investing. I've always had someone who's looking after that for me because why wouldn't you go to the experts to do that? But there are sort of plans and people out there that, that specialize in retirement and that side of things as you get to a certain age. Do, do you think that most people kind of are aware that that's something that they should also talk about? Because just investing is very different from planning for retirement, isn't it? I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. In the study we just completed, 60% of pre-retirees, so these are individuals 10 years away from retirement, are saving for retirement, but only 30% have a financial plan, which I think really highlights your point. You know, if you're saving for retirement and if you don't have a plan, how do you know if you're on track? Mm -hmm. So really, really critically important to have someone that you can work with um, that will be able to map this out and, and work with you. And again, Every journey is individual. Um, how people are looking at retirement is evolving. It's not a static moment in time. Um, but if you, don't, if you don't have an overall financial plan, I think it's really, really difficult to know if you're on track. Something, a term that's new to me is the big three legacy items that you use in your business. What are the big three legacy items and why are they important? Well, it's, it's you know, on, on another interesting component in this, uh, we call it our age wave study which is an organization we partnered with. And Canadians that have been retired for 15 or more years value relationships and experiences more than wealth and accomplishments when it comes to their legacy. So the majority of these retirees say they want to be remembered for their relationships with their family and friends, personal character, and the experiences they have you know, shared with loved ones. About one-third, and this is, this is somewhat concerning, about one-third of retirees do not have a will, and they should, uh, over half, so actually 60% do not have a power of attorney, and almost 80% have not established health care directives. So only 18% of Canadians have all three. This is a very significant opportunity, uh, especially when we're seeing the attitudes um, around retirees. So these are individuals 15 years or more in retirement changing and focusing more on what really matters around family and friends and leaving a legacy. I think it's a great focus area for our retirees and across Canada. David, for folks who are listening to this and thinking, you know, I, I don't really have somebody who does finances for me. I, I don't have anybody to do a will, power of attorney, healthcare directives, etc. Is it super expensive to find an expert to help you out with all these things? Um, I, I would first of all say it's important to interview two or three potential financial advisors or organizations to work with. Um, you know, our focus at Edward Jones is to build deep, personal, trusting relationships, and I think that's what uh, individuals should be looking for. Um, and, and it's really, really important to have that basis of trust. Um, I would say the organizations are available. Uh, everyone should do their own research as well, um, which there's there's lots available. Um, and I would say. For absolutely certain, um, these choices are available. Depending on how complex 
everyone's situation is. Um, if it's a very, very complex situation where you need trust set up and, and other uh, areas of focus, it, it could be more expensive um, in, in that case. But in general, um, no, I, I think it's it's actually surprising when you look at the cost to set up a will. Um, it is relatively inexpensive. And the fact that 33% of, of retirees don't have a will, that's a huge opportunity um, and that we're focusing on with our clients. Yeah, that's an interesting stat. You mm. think that we'd all be uh, thinking in those terms, but you know, maybe common sense isn't so common. Uh, thank you so much, uh, David, for your time. We appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Enjoy the Stampede Week. Thank you, sir. David Gunn, president of Edward Jones Canada. Educational disruptions thanks to COVID disproportionately impacted Canada's youth. So how can we help young Canadians prepare to enter the job market, to recover from what we went through over the past couple of years? With some insight, we're joined this morning by Parisa Mabubi, who is the Senior Policy Analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. Good morning to you, Parisa. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, a difficult year, a couple of years for everyone, obviously. Uh, but, you know, Andy and I both have kids. We've seen it in our own children. So uh, how did the COVID pandemic, you know, from the, the stats and the research that you've done, how did the pandemic impact Canadian kids and, and really sort of, you know, end up putting their lives on hold for certain periods of time? Uh, the pandemic affected youth uh, more severely than the rest of the population. And the reason is that in the labor market, for example, because their overrepresentation in industries that were hardest hit, and also they got affected through education system because the uh, education disruptions we were, uh, you know, students were faced uh, because of school closures to in-person learning, inconsistent uh, learning settings. So they. Uh, they are affected in two ways, through labor market impact and also educational impact of the COVID. So what does this mean? Are, are they prepared to make that transition into the job market? Or is this a case that is going to take longer than perhaps it would have for a student or a young adult uh, three, four years ago? So one good uh, thing that happened after the, the pandemic is that unlike, other, uh, uh, unlike previous uh, crises, the pandemic uh, was very deep, but at the same time, it was very short. The recovery started uh, very quickly, and uh, although we faced uh, several waves and uh, lockdowns, you know, in some provinces especially, um, but now the labor market is very tight, and we are facing labor shortages, and uh, unemployment has recovered, uh, labor force participation and uh, employment in, in many areas have uh, fully recovered at aggregate level. But when we look at, at some regions, when we look at, in, uh, at, uh, at some groups of youth, we are, fa- we are seeing that still there are some youth even in this tight labor market, they are experiencing some difficulties finding employment. They are facing high unemployment. And in terms of also learning, uh, although you know now school, uh, students can go back to school, they are uh, uh, online in-person learning is available to them. But we have to think about the learning losses that happen, and it is very on uh, you know it's more um, what we are predicting is that low-income disadvantaged students and those students experience more frequent and more prolonged 
school courses are more likely to uh, have uh, some learning losses that the uh, the schools, uh, the government needs to address that. Otherwise, in the long term, you know, uh, these learning losses are going to affect individuals and also those individuals uh, experiencing unemployment or experience frequent unemployment because uh, because several waves so they uh, they also need some sort of support to be able to find good jobs otherwise there will be some scarring so parisa what's the answer then here is it just is it more training is it more did did they lose a lot of education opportunities just from you know sort of being in and out of the school itself and having to work from home what what exactly do we need to do moving forward do you think in terms of moving forward, when it comes to learning losses, definitely offering tutoring um, during uh, and uh, after school for K-12 to students would be beneficial, encouraging uh, individuals to take uh, part in education, learning, training opportunities for older youth, and addressing barriers to participation, especially for non-student youth, would be very helpful. In terms of transition into labor market, expanding employment services, connecting individuals, you know, uh, to help them to be able to apply and find um, appropriate jobs, you know, related to their skills and their ability would uh, would help them uh, to find jobs and also enhancing labor uh, mobility. For younger kids, maybe it's not going to be that much helpful because they are, uh, they don't, uh, they are not able to uh, move from one location to another. But for all their uh, um, young individuals who are especially not in their schools, labor mobility is going to help them to move to areas that more jobs available and relevant to them, and also it can help them reduce mismatches in the labor market. I'm wondering, uh, Parisia, could this this lag of, of having some potential new workers entering the workforce have a domino effect and perhaps put the brakes on people who have been in their jobs for quite some time and maybe their plans to retire being put on hold. Could we see a bit, a bit of a domino effect? Uh, it's going to have some effect, definitely. And the reason is that, first of all, uh, our population is aging at a faster rate. The recent data from Stats Canada shows that the number of people exiting the labor market now is lower than, uh, it's higher than the number of people entering the labor market. So it is really important to support youth to uh, to be able to trans, uh, to make them uh, find employment faster and also uh, attach them to better jobs because we need labor we need the uh, skills and labor for uh, that uh, gap that we are going to see and we are also seeing for example uh, the recent data LFS data from uh, Stat- uh, Statistics Canada uh, unemployment rate now is at lowest uh, level that we've, we've seen. But um, in June, unemployment rate, one of the reasons for the decline was uh, wasn't because more people find jobs. It was because uh, more senior, you know, older workers exited labor market. And that's why they are not uh, in the pool of unemployed individuals. It's a discussion that's likely not going to uh, be able to be fixed or a problem that won't be fixed quickly. We'll be talking about this for a bit. Thanks so much for joining us and appreciate your take on it, Parisa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Parisa Mabubi, who's the Senior Policy Analyst at C.D. Howe Institute. Very, uh, very complex, I think, in that, as she alluded to, yeah, we have more people leaving. Excellent.
we have this huge need for employees right now. Mm -hmm. And we have, I'm using the term kids, but young adults who have not completed everything that they need to. Boy, it is going to be, this is one of those ripple effects after the pandemic. This is a wild time in our world, isn't it? Yeah, and if you, it seems to me if you want a job, you can get a job. Would it be the best job? But unemployment rate, record lows. Uh, we need to put, uh, you know, people to work. But at the same time, if you don't have the qualifications, if it's a specific job, it's going to be a tough go, I think, for the next few years. In Washington, the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol heard how former President Donald Trump was at the center of efforts to overturn the election and summon the mob that marched on the Capitol. With more on the hearings, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, a Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. What have we learned about the lengths Donald Trump was prepared to go as he tried to overturn his election laws? Well, yesterday's uh, committee hearing went into a couple of different aspects. Number one, it talked about the people that were inside the Trump circle, uh, people like Rudy Giuliani, outside legal advisors who were trying to push the former president to go down paths that were um, oftentimes illegal, like vote seizing, uh, voting machine seizing uh, and, and using martial law in order to stay in power. Uh, and then the committee kind of veered into the territory of the more the president pushed this election lie and the more he tried to explain that these avenues were realistic, that that tied in extremist right right wing groups and ultimately led to what took place on January 6th. So essentially what we learned yesterday was that there were people near the president that were pushing the president's narrative. The president pushed that narrative to the public. The public then latched onto it. The committee essentially trying to draw lines between extremist groups, outside groups, and the Oval Office. There also was some suggestion that there were attempts to witness tamper coming from Trump himself. What more do we know on that part of things? So we don't know a whole lot on that. That was kind of a tidbit that was released at the very end of the committee when the ranking Republican, uh, Liz Cheney, had said that Donald Trump had reached out to somebody who had not testified yet, either behind closed doors or in public. So we don't know who this person is. Uh, and that, that that was considered witness tampering or witness interference. But what we heard from Liz Cheney is that's something that could be referred to the Department of Justice. Now, does that mean it gets lumped into a concurrent investigation? Does it become part of a secondary investigation? That's something for the Attorney General to look at. But this kind of builds up that moment of is this committee now preparing to potentially put forth uh, some kind of criminal referral to the Department of Justice as these hearings continue with one more scheduled for next week? Mm -hmm. Reggie, what have we learned about far-right extremist groups and, and how they factored into the events that unfolded on the 6th of January? Yeah, so look, we have to remember here, members of the Proud Boys and members of the Oath Keepers were in D.C. I mean, I saw them with my own eyes on January 6th, and some of them have pleaded guilty and been indicted on charges of seditious conspiracy. And one of the members, uh, a former member of uh, the Oath Keepers, testified yesterday about the connections, about the the kind of feelings that they had uh, based on this call out from Donald Trump to come uh, and protest in D.C. There was a person who actually came and protested as well, uh, saying that he did so because he heard it as a call to action from the president. Uh, and this is important because we've now learned that in the weeks leading up to January 6th, from the day, December 19th, when Donald Trump put that text message out telling people to show up in January, members of right-wing extremist groups started shipping weapons into the district, which itself is a felony, uh, and that people were now armed, and we've learned this, the day of the rally on January 6th. So this, again, is that attempt to kind of draw a tighter circle in on the Trump administration and draw lines to show that 
that maybe there was some kind of back-channel communication with extremist groups because, again, worth pointing out, some members of these groups also had ties to people like Roger Stone, who were once uh, uh, kind of within the Trump orbit as advisors. And that is having an effect on Trump's popularity or support within the Republican Party now, isn't it? Yeah, there's there are, you know, conversations now. Is Trump going to be that ticket in 2024? Is this now simply too politically damaging for the Republican Party to stay behind Donald Trump? That is something that they're going to have to work through, but likely not until after the midterms. He's still playing a very keen role leading up to that election this coming November in trying to get the Republican base out and take the control back. So there's a chance here Republicans kind of rally behind the former president until they don't need him anymore and try to put somebody else on the ticket. But that becomes a moment where you're going to see the Republican Party fractured. Do the kind of diehard Trump part of the Republican Party stand behind him or do they rally behind somebody else and leave him in the past? That's going to become an internal conflict for the party. These hearings have become quite dynamic. Thanks for the explanation and the update, Reggie. Thank you. It's Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Once a month, we have the pleasure of joining the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, to talk about all the great conservation work the team is involved with all around the world. It is a pleasure to say once again, good morning, Dr. Axel. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for being with us. Uh, We want to talk with you about the little tree that was loved Cherished, right. carved, extinct for now. Axel, tell us all about the Toro Miro tree. Yeah, it's so special. A special tree in a special place, treasured by remarkable people. It's, the place is an island called Rapa Nui, which is commonly known as Easter Island. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's about 3,500 kilometers west of Chile in South America. It's quite famous because of 900 carved statues mm-hmm. that are up to 33 meters tall. Have you ever seen this? And they're like the, the, the heads of, of depicted ancestors that were sacred to the Rapa Nui people. And uh, Easter Island actually used to be forested and heavily populated, but by, by the late 1800s, only about 100 people remained. The question was why. And the main reason seems to be that all the trees were cut down. When you cut down the trees as well, you didn't have any wood left to make fishing boats and to get more food. And so then what happened is the whole place actually eventually got 40,000 sheep put on it and six species of land birds like rails, parrots, an owl, and a heron, as well as 25 plants went extinct. Mm. But there's one small tree called the Sephora Toromiro that had been there for 38,000 years. It's beautiful. It has like a red-brown bark, a twisted trunk, and yellow bell-shaped flowers, and it was sacred to the Rapa Nui people. Among other uses, it was used to make tablets with scripture and small statues representing various gods. Um, I don't know, do you know, like, David Attenborough, the famous British presenter? Of course, of, like, yeah. Earth? Yeah, right? So he tells the story that he purchased a religious carving made out of the street in New York for quite a good bargain, he says, in the 1980s. And it's one of the last remnants of this tree. In, in initial explorations, when Captain Cook came to this place, he said the tree was like everywhere. But by 1956, the last one was clinging to the side of a volcanic crater. Some folks actually collected seeds from it, as well as some seeds that were collected in 17 and 53. So what does all this have to do with us, right? The thing is that three weeks ago, I was in Rome to open and contribute to the first international conference on plant conservation translocations. 
And there I met a researcher from Chile who's, who's been working for 15 years on trying to bring this tree back from these seeds. And to be clear, this tree is considered extinct in the wild, right? Mm-hmm. There have been some attempts to bring it back, but it actually needs shade. But there's no other trees to shade it. Also, in ways that's quite amazing that they figured that out, this out, there's certain bacteria that the roots need to help it live and grow. So through our efforts at the Wild Institute Calgary Zoo, we're increasingly engaged in the recovery species that are extinct in the wild. And so now we're uh, exploring whether we can work with this researcher and botanic gardens around the world and partners to try and bring back this special little tree. So, Dr. Axel, um, could we? I, I don't mean to interrupt. I want to talk about that. That's yeah. so interesting to me, the fact that it needs shade, but there's no shade because yeah. there's no trees. Yeah. Is this something that, like the Toromiro, you could, you know, create ideal conditions within a nursery somewhere else and then, you know, maybe construct something that looks like kind of a shelter for these trees, that it has shade? How complicated is this process and what would that look like? Yeah, exactly. No, those are all the right questions. And in fact, this is. Uh, some of the work that they've been trying that they've actually been successful at in botanic gardens, even some trials that have been done on the island. And so basically, I mean, you could create some artificial shade to start with, right? Also, maybe you could grow some other trees that are easier to grow to start with to just give the, the their friend, the Toromiro tree, uh, some shade to begin with. And so this kind of experimentation has started. They're, they're also trying these different types of fungus. And so... For us, it seems like, wow, you know, there's this incredible situation on a very precious tree, culturally important, where researchers have already been working. And maybe they just need a little bit of extra help um, from ourselves and, and from others around the world to bring this back. And and it would be meaningful, you know, meaningful for for this place, for the culture, which still has some people um, in, in Chile and even on the island. And and. It, the connections that are there that go back actually 800 to 1,000 years in one of the most isolated places in the world, most impacted, but still a place that we could help to try and restore. So, Axel, is this another instance where, you know, researchers and teams from elsewhere in the world are coming to you and your group at the Calgary Zoo, Wilder Institute, because you're renowned now for for work like this? Yeah, I think so. The, The connection actually is we... We launched the. We had a, a conference that we launched in Chicago, 2018, on reintroductions. That inspired researchers from Italy to make the first such conference for plants. Now in Rome, I was invited to give the opening plenary and actually to close the conference. And then basically, in being there and being able to present our work from here, the types of things that we do, we got into these discussions and and uh, and the potential to help on this endangered species as well as potentially many other extinct and wild species so it is true i think the uh the tremendous support we get from the community here and the excellent researchers that we have and all the collective staff of wild institute calgary zoo make it possible have given us the credibility to be on a world stage to try and make a difference for more species and more places that need our help incredible work you do incredible stories that you have to tell us and and bring to us each month dr axel we appreciate your time and uh, keep doing what you do Thank you, and uh, thanks for allowing us to tell the story, and thank you for supporting wildlife conservation.
Thanks. That's Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.